0: I'd like to have us uh, turn to God's Word together this morning. Our text is Jonah chapter 4, and that's on page 754, if you're following along in the Bibles and the pews. Again, that's Jonah chapter 4. And we're finishing up our sermon series uh, looking at the book of Jonah this week. And then uh, this coming Wednesday, uh, we'll be having an Ash Wednesday service to kick off the beginning of Lent. And during the season of Lent, we'll be spending most of our time uh, in the book of Hebrews. But today we wrap up Jonah. Jonah. So this is right after Jonah chapter 3. Jonah has finally made it to Nineveh. He has preached the message that God has given him, or maybe just half of it, all judgment, no grace. And yet God has used what he preached there anyway uh, to bring about revival, quite possibly the greatest revival in the history of the world. And so that's kind of how uh, chapter 3 ends. God responds to that revival, the text says, by not choosing to bring about the destruction on Nineveh that he had threatened so that's the very last verse there when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened and so then we pick things up here at chapter 4 and this is what it says but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry he prayed to the Lord isn't this what I said Lord when I was still at home Isn't this what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he built himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah's head to give shade to his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed down on Jonah's head, and he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been very concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow it sprang up overnight and died overnight and should i not have great concern or should i not have concern for the great city of nineveh in which more than 120,000 people live who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals this is the word of the lord thanks be to god sisters and brothers in jesus christ just like parents with their kids Pastors aren't supposed to have favorites. Uh, We're not supposed to have favorite passages, favorite texts, favorite books of the Bible. After all, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we love it all. We use it all. It's all God's inspired, ordained, and infallible word. No favorites, no preferences. Uh, You're not allowed to like one text more than another. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that I do have favorites. Uh, For instance, the text after the one I just quoted, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, that's one of my favorites. Uh, So is Ephesians 4, which talks about God giving the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and others to equip his people. It's really kind of a job description for people like me. Uh, There's the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, the various legal codes in Leviticus, which while they bore everyone else, I just find them to be super interesting. Uh, The Psalms of Ascent, which we looked at last year, and then there's also my Favorite of the Gospels, which is the book of John. But far and away, one of my all time favorite passages comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. As we talked about when we looked at that passage a few months ago as part of our Luke series, and by we, I mean you and Steve, since I was home sick that Sunday morning and he was gracious enough to read my sermon for me uh, that morning, the name that that passage is most commonly known by is misleading. Uh, Often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells a story in that passage of not just one son who rejects his father, but two. Without re-preaching that whole sermon, which, since it's one of my favorites, is kind of hard for me to resist, uh, I'll try to explain it briefly uh, and how it relates to our passage this morning. The parable opens with a man whose younger son rebels against him. Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That's how the story starts. This man's younger son uh, rebels against him by demanding his share of the inheritance, leaving his father's house, and then going off to live in an opulent and indulgent and hedonistic lifestyle. It doesn't work out very well for him, but that's what he does. In other words, that parable is a morality tale. It tells us to respect our parents, to live responsibly, to stick to the straight and narrow so that we don't become like the prodigal. Or that's what it would tell us if that's where it ended. But it's not. There's a second son in that parable. And like we already said, he too rebels against the father. That's because eventually this rebellious younger son comes back. He tries to apologize to his father and repent of his actions, but his his dad doesn't even let him get halfway into the apology before he welcomes him back into the family, forgives him, and in grace and mercy restores him to his place in the family. He dresses his son, puts a ring on his finger, and kills the fattened calf so they can have a party. And again, it would be a great story of gospel mercy and redemption if that's where it ended. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see, the older son rebels against his father too. He does it less spectacularly than his younger brother, his rebellion, his rejection of his father is less obvious, less overt, less in your face, but it's a rebellion nonetheless. Because the older brother's rebellion is a seething, angry, self-righteous rebellion that looks down on everyone and everything as less than himself. That includes clearly his younger brother, who he has no time for, but it includes also his father. He thinks both his, his father and his brother are wrong, ridiculous, and less intelligent and wise than he is himself, and so he wants nothing to do with either of them anymore. So two sons in that parable, both lost. One rebels against his father by running away, and the other rebels against him by sticking close and resenting him. In his insightful little book on Jonah then, The Prodigal Prophet, pastor and author Tim Keller points out that Jonah in turn plays both parts. At different parts in this book, he plays the part of both sons from that parable. After all, as we've seen, Jonah starts out this book like the younger son. Overtly and obviously rebelling against God's call to Nineveh, Jonah sets off for the distant country of Tarshish, hoping to squander his life there, far from the watchful eye of his father God. But like the younger son, Jonah also hits rock bottom. The only difference is that rather than feeding pods to pigs, he himself actually becomes the meal when he gets fed to a big fish. Again, though, like the younger son, that ends up being the impetus for his repentance and humbling. Like the younger son, Jonah returns to his father. He returns to God, repents of his rebellion, and finds himself restored in grace and mercy. He even does what God asks and finally goes to Nineveh, where he preaches the message that God has given him, or at least half of it, and kickstarts the greatest revival to ever happen. And like the parable, the book of Jonah would be a great story, if that's where it ended. But again, like the parable, it keeps going. That's because by the time we get here to chapter 4, Jonah, the younger son, gives way to Jonah, the older son. Still rebelling against God here, Jonah rejects his father, not by running away from him this time, but instead by staying close and resenting him. And that's what we see here in our text for this morning, right? Jonah, having faithfully, at least to a degree, fulfilled his mission and preached to Nineveh, now suddenly recoils at his success. As we saw at the end of our text last week, when God saw what Nineveh did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But then our text this morning opens, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This doesn't make any sense, does it? Jonah should be delighted here. He should be happy. He should be over the moon. After all, he has just accomplished what every prophet wants to accomplish when God sends them on a mission. He has delivered the word of the Lord. He's witnessed his power. He's seen all of Nineveh from the king on his throne on down. Repent. They've put on sackcloth and ashes. They've called a fast from food and water. They've turned from their evil ways and they have humbled themselves before God. And yet, instead of thanking God, instead of acknowledging his power, his glory, and his goodness, instead of praising him for the salvation he's made possible, Jonah pouts. He asks to die. Take away my life, he says to God. For it is better for me to die than to live. And then when God doesn't acquiesce to his request, he doesn't kill him, Jonah instead stages a walkout. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. You see, Jonah doesn't want this. Like we've talked about in this series, Jonah doesn't want to be successful. He doesn't want his mission to work. He doesn't want Nineveh to repent and God to relent. Instead, as he makes abundantly clear here, he wants Nineveh destroyed. He wants them to die. In fact, he actually gives God sort of an ultimatum of sorts here. He gives them a choice. He says it's either them or me. If you wipe Nineveh away, I'm happy to go on living, but if you don't, if you relent, if you forgive them and let them live, then I want you to wipe me away. I want you to take my life. I want to die. Them or me, Jonah says. You gotta pick God, them or me. Now to be sure, there's grace here too unexpected grace, like we've talked about in this series, uh, it's comforting to know that even in the midst of our rebellion, uh, our rejection of God, our obstinate uh, desire to do anything other than his will, it's, it's comforting to know that God can still use us like he uses Jonah here. But I think it's striking when you read this chapter, how Jonah lacks completely and totally any love for this city that he's supposed to be evangelizing. He doesn't care about Nineveh here. He doesn't care about the people. He doesn't care about the animals. He doesn't care about the teeming mass of souls there. They're just numbers to him, statistics, dirty pagans who deserve to be judged, condemned, and destroyed. The mere fact that their continued life and existence makes Jonah want to die tells us that. It tells us what he thinks of the Ninevites, how he feels about them, and how little he cares for this city that he's supposed to be saving. There is one thing Jonah cares about, though. It's because in verse six we read, the Lord God provided a a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. Jonah may not care for the city of Nineveh, but he cares for this plant. The Hebrew word there is sama. What that word literally means is to be glad, to delight in, to rejoice and be happy about something. Uh, most often in scripture, it's actually used to describe the reaction that people have towards God. Joy in the Lord. It's a word that is used to express God's, uh, his people's delight in him. But not here. Here Jonah rejoices, delights, and is glad not in the Lord, not in God, and not in the salvation that he is working in Nineveh, but instead in a plant. At least until disaster strikes. Because in verses 7 through 8 we read, But at dawn the next day God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. You see, as quickly as it sprang up, Jonah's beloved plant is gone. And in its place, the sulking, angry, older son prophet returns, resenting God and wishing that he would kill him. And yet, grace upon grace, God isn't quite done with Jonah just yet. It turns out that the plant had a purpose. Its short life and quick death was meant to make a point. God comes to Jonah and he says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And I love Jonah's response here, because he's just so like, you know, he doubles down. on It is, he says, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God's point here, I think, is clear. He's telling Jonah that yes, he should care for this city he should want his mission to Nineveh to be successful he should want the Ninevites to repent and God to relent he should he shouldn't be outside the city sitting sulking caring more about a plant than people like the older brother in Jesus parable who refuses to go in to the party and share in his father's joy Instead, Jonah should be delighted, happy, and glad about what's happened. He should be rejoicing not in a plant, but Nineveh's salvation. In short, he should be showing the same kind of love for the people of Nineveh that God has for them. And so should we. You see, it's no accident that the book ends this way. Uh, Like the parable of the lost sons, it ends on a note of uncertainty. Uh, We don't know if the older brother in the parable goes in to join his father and younger brother in the party, and we don't know how Jonah responds to God's question here either. The book ends on a question. Most commentators believe that was intentional. They believe that the author of this book intentionally ends on that question and leaves it hanging in the air. He doesn't do that because he doesn't want to write the rest of the story or tell us what happened to Jonah or Nineveh or all the rest. He does it instead because he wants us to finish the story. He wants us, his readers, to write the ending. He wants us to ask ourselves that question. How would we respond if we were in Jonah's shoes here? You see, like I said in the first sermon in this series, this book of Jonah is a mirror. It tells us about Jonah, yes, but it tells us things about ourselves, too. We are to see ourselves both the good and the bad, the mixed bag, just like Jonah is here, reflected back to us. And so when the author leaves that question from God hanging in the air at the end of this book, we need to realize that the question is not just directed to Jonah, but it's directed to us as well. As James Lindbergh writes in his commentary on this passage, as the story winds down, the questions addressed to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Should I not care for the great city of Nineveh? Those questions are addressed to those listening to the story. Jonah, it becomes clear, is me. He's you. Thus, the story asks its hearers, do you recognize yourself in the figure of Jonah? Do you detect in yourself symptoms of the Jonah syndrome? The question is put to the people of God asking about their attitude towards the people of the Ninevehs, the great cities of the world. The question is put to each who hears the story, to those who may have discovered symptoms of the Jonah syndrome in their hearts. God is the one who asks it. Should my love not extend to the thousands, the millions of people in the great cities of the world and even to the animals and should not our love too? That's the question here. That's the question God asked Jonah. It's the question he asks us today, too. Should I not love this city? Should I not care for it? And shouldn't you? The answer is yes. You see, that's a key ingredient to our evangelism these days. Last week, we talked about some approaches for how we can do evangelism with our friends and family members, our coworkers and neighbors, our acquaintances and those we have relationships with in this post-Christian culture and world, uh, but I left one out because knowing that we would be coming here to this chapter this morning and looking at this text, I saved it for today because in order to truly evangelize people these days, we need to love them, and I mean really love them. You see, so often as Christians, we're like Jonah in this book. We're older brothers, older sons who look down on people who don't think like us, don't believe like us, don't care about the same things we do. Jonah hated the Ninevites because they were Assyrians. They weren't like him. They weren't Israelites, they weren't God's chosen people. So Jonah looked down on them, viewed himself as better than them, saw himself as superior to them, and it showed in his stubborn refusal refusal to see them saved. And so often we do something similar to those we minister to. But people can tell that. You ever been around somebody that you know doesn't like you? You can tell it, right? People can tell when we look down on them. They can tell when we don't really care about them. They can tell when they only matter to us until we convert them and get to notch another kill on our evangelism kill chart, okay? And I'll be honest, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. Uh, I am so deeply convinced of the gospel that it doesn't make sense to me when other people don't believe it. I hear some of the things that other people believe and I think, how can they believe that? How can they not see the truth? How can they go through their lives without Jesus? And I just kind of shake my head, but people can tell that. They can see it, they can feel it, and it turns them off to, to God and the gospel even more when Christians treat them that way. And so if we're going to evangelize people, convert them and lead them to Christ, we need to start by loving them. They need to know we care about them. They need to know we appreciate them. They need to know we respect and are interested in them, and not just so that we can convert them, but simply because they're important, because they matter, and because they are made in the image of God. And they need to know that, by the way. And they need to know that our love will continue even if they never end up doing what we want and converting. Then and only then, if we love people like that, will they consider allowing themselves to be loved by the God we profess to. That brings us to the gospel. You see, there's a very simple reason that we need to love people like that. It's because that's the way that we ourselves have been loved. That's the kind of love we, as God's people, have received from God himself. And so if we want others to know and experience that love, then we need to love them that way too. It's just that simple. People are only going to know the love of our God if they experience that love through us as his people. And what love is that? what love do we receive from God? Well, it's a love that made this wonderful world. It's a love that promised to renew and redeem this world after we plunged it into sin. And it's a love that kept that promise, sent us a savior, and like the people of Nineveh, forgave us and turned away from the judgment we deserve. In short, like we already sang this morning, it's a love that will not let us go. That's the love God has shown us through his son, Jesus Christ, and that's the love that we are called to show others too. Thanks be to God, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we have experienced a love that is beyond description. You love us with an incredible faithfulness a desire to chase, chase after the one, to leave the 99 behind, to come and find us, gather us up in your arms and bring us back to you. As people who have experienced that kind of love, help us to demonstrate that kind of love so that others will also come to know you. Thank you for not forsaking us in all our ways of rebellion. In the times when we've acted like younger sons and older sons both, thank you for being a loving God who desires to restore us to your family. And thank you for doing that through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.